Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast with Dr. Lance Miller. Each week, we bring you interviews with the top minds in the orthodontic profession in order to heighten your expertise, boost your motivation, and raise your skills. Join us as we help doctors take their practices and their lives to the next level. And now, here's your host, Dr. Lance Miller. Welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics Podcast. I'm Dr. Lance Miller. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our show. I'm glad that you're here with us. We've got a great guest today, Andrea Cook, who's going to be talking about a topic that may initially not pique your interest, infection control, sterilization, clinical efficiency. But I guarantee you this is going to be a conversation that you're going to learn something from. Uh, We had a very interesting, I think, and productive conversation, maybe a little bit different than what you're expecting. So stay tuned for that, and I guarantee you're going to get some good pearls out of this interview. Before we get into the interview, I wanted to spend a minute talking about some year-end planning and some forward thinking into 2019. We talked in a previous episode about projecting revenues and trying to understand how we can grow our top-line number. Today, I'd like to talk a little bit about our expenses and how we control our overhead in an orthodontic practice, or maybe at least how we understand it, how we monitor it. When we're talking about overhead in an orthodontic office, you know, everyone wants to understand and perhaps even compare their total overhead percent. And it's good to keep that in mind, our total expenses. That number can vary wildly. Most commonly, I see orthodontic practices with overheads in the range of 50% to 60%. But if you're a new practice, if you've got a high overhead area that you're practicing in, that could be over 70%. Uh, I've also seen outliers down to or even below 40% overhead. Uh, We had a guest recently on the podcast who had a practice with a very, very low overhead percentage. But I think that 50 to 60% range is our most common. So one thing when we look at this, obviously knowing a big number like that, 50 to 60%, doesn't tell us a lot. It's not very actionable. It doesn't allow us to make decisions or plan for the new year. So of course, what we want to do is we want to break it down into categories. One thing I hate when I look at profit and losses from practices is when they're very poorly organized or or not at all. They're they're in, you know, 20 different categories and there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it and I have a hard time really understanding what's going on. So I would recommend that you get with your accountant or whoever's running your practice numbers and try to sort these into categories, subcategories that allow you to really understand a little bit more what's going on. And at the very least, I think you want to have a category for staff or for employee costs. You want to have a category for clinical supplies and laboratory expenses. You want to have a category for occupancy, for what it costs you to be in your facility, rent, utilities, uh, snow plowing up here in New England. And then lastly, what I call management. Uh, These are things like legal, financial, marketing, uh, miscellaneous office expenses, postage, you know, all those sorts of things that aren't really clinical supplies, but you still need to run your office. I think if you do this, if you sort it by category, you're going to be able to understand a little bit more what's going on year to year. Another thing to do is to look at these categories and compare maybe this year to date versus last year to date. See how 2018 compares to 2017 before you start looking into 2019. Look and see where your practice expenses have gone up. Have they gone down in certain areas? Does this make sense in terms of the decisions that you're making? Are there any surprises that you need to investigate a little bit more? I think if you run that report uh, comparing 2017 to 2018, you'll learn a few things about where your expenses are going. Another great report that you can run or your accountant can run for you is an expenses by vendor report. Look at this year 
compared to last year? And what are you paying these vendors? Has it gone up? Has it gone down by vendor? And really evaluate whether you're getting the value from that relationship that you think that money represents. Uh, I find that when I run that report, there's always a couple of surprises or maybe an expense that's in there uh, that's still you know, recurring or something that I'm not thrilled with and that I have to reevaluate. So when we look at these categories, we talked about staff, clinical supplies in the lab, occupancy and management. You know, what are some ballpark figures? I'd say for staff, I'm seeing a lot 20%, 25%, maybe at, at the high range for an orthodontic office. Clinical supplies plus laboratory expenses, including Invisalign, 10 to 15% seems to be a common range. Uh, occupancy, the cost of being in your space, maybe 10%. And then management, uh, again, uh, marketing plus all of these non-operational expenses, maybe another 10%. That's how we get to that 50 to 60%. Of course, it's going to be a little bit different for everyone. And as long as you can understand why your percentages are where they are, that's okay. The other thing is that when we look at these percentages, of course, we're looking at them as a percent of collections. Uh, we don't want to look at a percentage of production. You know, you cannot pay your bills, we all know, with production. You can only pay your bills with collections. So look at the percentages as a percent of collections. I want to highlight real quick under our management uh, this marketing expense, because this is a question a lot of people have. What should my marketing budget be? Of course, this depends on whether you're trying to grow your practice or not. If you're happy with where your practice is, I suppose that number could be low, or maybe you could be reducing it. I would say in a growing practice, uh, spending 5% or more on marketing uh, is not uncommon or ill-advised. I think that's a good thing to do. So what are good things you can spend your marketing budget on? That's a topic for another podcast. So once we've got our categories kind of outlined here and we've got some target percentages for each one, go ahead and multiply that out so that you can actually get some dollar figures. These are kind of rough estimates. When we set a budget like this by dollar, it's not there so that we can constrain ourselves or so we can miss out on any opportunities that might come our way but rather it's a chance for us to really understand what's going on and use any deviations from our projected budget as a chance to maybe double check. Is this a good decision? Do I like this idea? Do I want to pursue this? If you say, yeah, I can't miss it, that's great. If you say, no, I really should stick with my budget, well, at least there's a little bit of a check and balance there. And my last advice for you when it comes to planning expenses for the new year is to really set aside every month a small amount for capital improvements. So in our office, you know, last year we had bought two new Pan-Ceph machines. We bought some digital scanners. This year I bought a new compressor and vacuum for one of my offices, and we're about to do some sterilization overhauls, including buying three new Midmark M11s. So we've had some capital expenses that we kind of knew. Next year we're going to have to replace almost all of our computers in all three offices, just because it's easier to do that than trying to upgrade from Windows 7. That's a whole other story. But in any case, there's another big projected capital expense coming up. So what I like to do is transfer, you know, a couple thousand dollars, you know, it could be more, could be less, every month automatically out of my main checking account into kind of a side account that I know I have that money set aside for bigger projects, for these one-time projects, which we know they're one-time, but they're one-time not per your lifetime. They're like one time per year. So they're almost known or projected expenses. So put aside a little bit for these projects, for these bigger expenses, for renovations, uh, for a new smile shuttle, whatever it's going to be, it's always something. 
And that way you've got a little bit of a reserve. And when you have to make these bigger expenses, it doesn't ding your cash flow uh, as badly as, as it might if you weren't set up for it. Anyway, I hope those are some useful thoughts on projecting your expenses for 2019. We're going to get into our interview here with Andrea Cook after a quick word from one of our sponsors. This episode of the Elevate Orthodontics podcast is sponsored by the Aligner Intensive Fellowship Course, where together we will accomplish something greater. For orthodontists only, this course taught by Drs. Maz Mushiri and me, Jonathan Nikosesis, is a comprehensive four-month online course where you learn all things aligner therapy, from biomechanic principles to logistical systems for seamless office integration and the economics of more aligners in your practice. Think of it as a 12-chapter online dynamic textbook where the content is broken down in videos posted throughout each week, and you're able to ask questions in real time in a virtual classroom setting from the convenience of your own home or office on your own computer or cell phone without having to travel. With the ability of applying the course content to any aligner system or in-office solution of your choosing, the Aligner Intensive Fellowship is where together we will certainly accomplish something greater. Andrea Cook is an orthodontic consultant and speaker whose in-office, hands-on training motivates and energizes orthodontic clinical teams. She bases her training systems on practical knowledge gained through her 20 years of chairside experience. As we know, effective training for clinical team members is critical to the advancement of clinical productivity and profitability. Andrea's years of experience include working in single, double, and multi-doctor practices, She has extensive experience as a clinical coordinator for multi-doctor practice seeing over 120 patients per day. Her experience provides her unique insights for the orthodontic clinical team's challenges and concerns. Andrea, welcome to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you having me and I look forward to sharing with your listeners. You're here in our town of Keene, New Hampshire. What do you think? It is amazing. Your fall color I love it. Yeah. One of the best things. So the hospitality has been wonderful. The food is great. So it's been a great visit. Awesome. It's a great time to come to New Hampshire here in the fall. If anyone wants to come and visit, this is the time that they always are are looking to come up here and see all the fall colors. Yes. Don't miss the window, though. (laughs) There's a short window. Yeah, there was, uh, I don't know if you saw this, there was snow up in the White Mountains, only about an hour and a half from here. They got three (laughs) feet of snow yesterday. Oh, wow. There was a hiker that had to be rescued because he was in waist-deep snow and couldn't make it out. So uh, winter is coming. (laughs) That that window you talk about is a a real thing. (laughs) It's closing in. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some clinical topics. We're going to talk about about OSHA and infection control and how uh, doctors can know that they're in compliance with that. We're going to talk a little bit about some clinical efficiencies. You know, these can be some perhaps dry topics, but I think you do a good job of uh, making them a little bit interesting. So, so we'll dive right in. Andrea, I think one thing in the back of doctors' minds as they're thinking about this topic is, boy, I really hope that I'm in compliance. I think I've given my team all the tools and training that I need to. I don't really want to micromanage them and to get into the details or the weeds of everything. You know, how can I know and and how can I empower my team? What advice would you have for doctors in that regard? Well, OSHA is a dry subject. The teams that I work with really want to be compliant. They want the information. They are trying very hard. Unfortunately, they just don't know what they don't know. That's the problem with OSHA. If you read about it, it's a horribly dry subject. You can send them to, there's a lot of online courses that'll give them what they need. I have manuals that they can get that they can get the information that they need and implement it if they want to do it on their own. But getting them that information is a huge, huge step. Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right that 
my experience with staff is that usually they're pretty eager to, to do this and to follow the rules and to take pride in their work. Absolutely. And they're not trying to sabotage you by not doing it. It's basically, I don't know what to do. Right. So in 2018, what really is the preferred system you know, where we can, let's take our regular setups that we're using on a regular basis. You know, just walk us briefly kind of through the process so people have a mindset of, of how that's supposed to work. Well, in 2018, things are a little bit different. When I started in, in 1987 in ortho, dry heat was the standard of care. That's what everybody used. Dentronics, everybody had one, some had two. It's changed a lot. Most of my offices that are moving to either uh, renovation, new office, anything, are moving to steam heat. And I know steam heat has a little bit of a bad reputation. Everybody thinks moisture, rust, doling of instruments, but that's not the case. Most of my offices will use an ultrasonic to clean the instruments, rinse them, add a lubricant, steam sterilize, and then go into storage. One of the benefits of moving to steam sterilization is we can do what the CDC says and package prior to sterilization for instruments that are going into storage. So that's one of the biggest benefits, one of the biggest drawbacks of dry, dry heat. Right, right. People say, oh, I'm, all my pliers and cutters are going to get rusty if I put them in there. I mean, what, how, how do we prevent that from happening? Generally, that's from not having a lubricant in there. So after they get cleaned in the ultrasonic, they get rinsed, then we can add a lubricant. You can spray on a milk bath, you can dip them in a milk bath, but that's generally what's causing them. Poor quality instruments will increase the chance of that happening, but with protection. I have offices, I've been doing sterilization for 10 to 15 years. The systems that are in place, if they follow them, are not having rust issues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can be done. Do you have any rules of thumb for maybe, just let's think about autoclaves, like how many autoclaves or how many patients per day per autoclave? I mean, is, are there some kind of rules of thumb to know whether you have enough throughput on your sterilization system for the number of patients that you're seeing in a day? Basic rule of thumb with sterilizers, autoclave sterilizers, is I would encourage buying the largest one that you can. 60 patients a day average means two large sterilizers, basically, depending on how you practice. If you're heavy Invisalign practice, you may not need it. If you're heavy bands and brackets, you may need an extra one. When you get up to the 100, you're going to need at least three, or you're going to have to have a lot more instruments to keep the throughput time happening. That's kind of a rule of thumb. But when you buy a sterilizer... Get a big one. So if you have more setups, as I'm hearing, then you can maybe get away with slightly fewer, less capacity on the autoclave side because I guess then that would get done on an off day or at the beginning of the day, something like that, to get you caught back up. Correct. If you have more instruments, you can load the machines at the end of the day, run them at night, come in the morning and you have you know fresh setups ready to go. So we can find that happy medium between how many sterilizers. And it depends somewhat on the space, too. Some offices... Don't have the linear feet for two. Right. We can stack them, we can do things, but sometimes you don't have the space. So we need more setups to allow them just to keep up. Okay. And the teams really do want to keep up and they want to do the right thing. And oftentimes they get forced to do things, um, opening the sterilizer prior to the end because they don't have enough. So I encourage giving them what they need. So when I think about this whole topic, it all kind of gets lumped together, right? We've got infection control, we've got OSHA, we've got you know all these kind of random things like cleaning out your water lines and making sure you've got eye protection and making sure you're 
radiology is up to speed and your fire escape plan is done. Like these all kind of get lumped in into one thing and it gets to be a little bit overwhelming. There obviously seems to be, you know, a point of diminishing returns where you try to be 98% compliant, but going after the 99th percent is sometimes can be expensive or, or not worth the time. Do you recommend in an office, you know, having appointing someone to be the, the point person for that to kind of take ownership of all of these things? What works best in terms of delegating those responsibilities? I recommend having somebody in charge, but also in 2016, CDC came out with some regulations and they were more administrative regulations and they are requiring that the office have an infection prevention coordinator. OSHA requires that they have an OSHA coordinator in the office, somebody who is designated to be responsible for the program and trained. And then they train down. So one person is responsible. They train the new team members that are coming on and the existing team members and are responsible for managing it, making sure that the doctor is protected. Now, for the doctor side of that, if you're expecting your team member to protect you and know what to do, I would recommend that you give them the training that they need to help them do that. Yeah. An OSHA inspection is not, it's not for the lighthearted and it's not something you want to go through. I've had several offices that have gone through one and they've lived to tell about it. If you were doing a lot of what you were supposed to do, if you have an OSHA inspection, they're going to come in, they're going to ask for some things. One of the first things they will ask is, who's your infection prevention coordinator? If you start telling them these things, giving them the things they need, they're going to settle down. If you start saying, um, I don't know, or we don't do that, or I don't have those, they're going to ramp up and it's not going to be as fun. So having some simple pieces in place will help that process. Uh, so you have had some clients come in. What are they looking what are the common areas that you know an inspector, when they come in, are, are looking to see their, that you have in place? Um, two types of inspections. So there's two types of, of protection that you need. One is the CDC, which is instrument reprocessing and protecting your patient. The other one is OSHA, which that protects your employees. Most of the inspections are not random. They come from somebody calling in. A patient sees something in the office, calls the state dental board. Um, you have a disgruntled employee, maybe you let somebody go, or they feel that their risks are going to call OSHA. That's what's going to spur those inspections. Um, when an inspection comes in, first thing you want to do is when they come in, uh, make sure that your front desks ask for identification, who they are, what they're here for. You can ask them to wait while you go find the doctor, go do whatever. They can say, no, they will wait, and they will go ahead and go back into the clinic. Most of them will sit down, have a seat, wait. Doctor goes out, starts the conversation. They will ask, one of the first things is, who's your infection prevention coordinator? Who's your OSHA coordinator? They have the right to talk to them alone without a doctor present, which really scares <laughs> team members from signing up for this and project. And doctors, for that and, matter. And doctors. <laughs> the whole process is not fun. But they'll start asking for some very simple documents. And like I said, once that starts and things kind of settle down, they generally do a walkthrough. They're going to leave you with a laundry list. That's what they're going to do. Um, the only time they're really going to shut you down, fine you intensely, is if you are blatantly disregarding either the OSHA guidelines or the CDC. What about more difficult to you know sterilize things? You know, we've got plastics, we've got mirrors, we've got kind of things that are being used here and there. You know, is, is cold sterile dead? You know, can we 
re-sterilize all of these scanner tips. I mean, there's kind of all these weird miscellaneous things that you know we're not quite sure what to do with. If it were up to me, I would get rid of cold sterile period. It's caustic, it's nasty, it's expensive, it deteriorates our plastics. My preference is no cold sterile. Those offices that are moving to steam, not a problem. There's enough plastics on the market now that, that can sustain. I want to caution people, if you are sterilizing plastics, all of the sterilizers have a plastic cycle, which only goes up to 250 degrees. The reason most of the plastics get melted is they are put into the cycle that the goes up to 270 degrees. Again, the team member's not trying to hurt the, the items. They just don't know. But get plastics. There's enough plastics or disposables that you can move away from cold sterile. So save the money from cold sterile. Buy plastics that can be autoclavable and your money ahead. Yeah, or you put the plastics in immediately after kind of a regular cycle. And even then sometimes, you know, or your sterilizer's a little bit small like mine is, and you just have to have a constant budget for NOLA bits and pieces <laughs> as they get toasted uh, with some regularity, at least in our office. So Absolutely. Yeah. And as far as the scanner tips goes, the single-use disposables, Nevada had a crackdown some time ago about single-use disposable items being reused. And my caution is, it's not worth it. I understand they're expensive. There are There is a new one that's out on the market that is autoclavable. It's just got into the market now, into offices, probably within the last week. Yeah, Strauss Diamond or something yes. like that. We, we ordered some and they seem to be working okay. We're, we're still kind of in the testing phase. That's where it is right now. So I'm kind of seeing how they pan out for the next few months, but that might be a great option for offices. And then we can start, we can stop the conversation of are we going to start or stop re sterilizing our single use disposable scanner tips that are what, $3? Yep. Yeah. They're horribly <laughs> expensive. They are. They are. Okay, great. Well, I know, Andrea, that when you come out, you know, you look at other things in, in an orthodontic office in terms of how it's running and how the clinic is set up. You know, I think there's a lot of doctors who get into practice and they start growing their practice. You know, they're out there marketing and they're working on their new patient process so that they can really razzle-dazzle these new families that are coming in. Uh, and their practice is growing. And then it gets to a point where all of a sudden they realize that the clinic is just out of control. I mean, they've got more patients per day than they want or they're, everyone's over treatment time. So let's say someone just calls you up and they just have this kind of generic dissatisfaction with how their clinic is running. What what are the first things that you go in and, and, and see, you know, that people can make some immediate changes to kind of get some sanity back? <laughs> sanity is important. So when the when the big market crash in 2008 hit, a lot of orthodontists from about 2008 to 2012 really focused on marketing. And that was their sole existence. I just market the heck out of this thing. We're going to get these patients in. That was a great concept, but what didn't happen is the clinic didn't balance out, and so they had growth on one side, so they had you know 10% growth or whatever. They didn't increase their clinical procedures and appointments at that same level, and they got out of whack. So they didn't have appointment times the patients wanted. They didn't have enough procedures in their templates. So when the clinic and the front get out of whack and out of balance, it's important to go in and look at your numbers and say, how many patients do you have? Look at how many procedures it takes you to complete a case. And then that will tell me how many procedures you need built into your template to make the, get the balance back in. Yeah. If it's patients overestimated completion date, 
that is causing you to have too many patients in your schedule, then that's a different problem and we start. But the numbers in your computer will tell you that. Right, right. So you're talking about kind of how many appointment types are available each day and designing the grid template to make sure that you have the availability for the number of patients in your practice. You know, I think that's something that, that we've looked at in our practice quite a bit. How often should people be running these numbers or, or evaluating things? If you are experiencing growth, you should be doing it on an annual basis to make sure that you are not getting out of balance. If you are pretty level and you aren't changing mechanics, you aren't changing team members, every two to three years you should do a revisit. But most offices aren't like that. Most offices are not running flat. Right. They are either, most of I don't have a lot of offices in decline the way they were, you know, in 2008. A lot of them are still maintaining growth. And so every year, revisit, look at your numbers to see if the number of procedures that you have in your template meets the number of procedures that you have coded that you have done for the last year. If they're not balanced, you need to revisit your template. Yeah. Or you're going to force the hand of your scheduler to override. I look at it every year. We've, I think every single year we've evaluated. And, and as you're right, we, we have had some growth in our practice. But to me, it's just like the lifeblood of your day. Like when you go in and if your grid is set up poorly, you're going to be miserable. You're going to be tired. You're going to be doing things at times that you don't want to do them at. You're not going to have the space there for exams and for whatever else. So I always feel like, how can you expect your practice to really grow and thrive if it's not set up in a way that really meets your goals or meets your needs. And, and sometimes you know you can be a little bit optimistic with the number of maybe exam slots or something like that and then work hard to fill them. But you've got to at least get in there and make sure that your practice is, is running smoothly. And I every year I have... Like just little things, like like I don't want that appointment at four thirty anymore. Like I don't want to ever do that at the end of the day. <laughs> so don't don't allow that to happen, right? Like you can choose these things. Or I don't like like one thing I don't like is I don't like seeing two adult patients in the chair at the same time if I can avoid it. Now sometimes we can't, but our schedule is set up so in theory I only have one adult patient in the chair at a time because the worst is when you come out of the consult and you have two adults glaring at you because they've been waiting for ten minutes and now you're really in a pickle because you. Don't don't know which way to go. So that's like like all these little things you can do to kind of set yourself up to make your day run smoother. Absolutely. Working smarter, not harder. If your template is out of whack and your numbers are not in line, you're working a lot harder than you need to to do something that should be should flow pretty easily through the day if it's set up right. Now, you guys all have day, days that are going to derail. You are the best set template, everything. But if you have all the pieces in place, 90% of the time you're going to have better days. Yeah. So, but it does take revisiting it on a regular basis. Yeah. So that's one aspect of it, making sure your grids are set up. But what percentage of it are things like, you know, do you find that people are getting slowed down because, you know, is, are, are the assistants just not fast enough or are they not well trained enough? Or is it that the doctor kind of has 10,000 appliances they're using or kind of runs around in circles on their treatment plan? I mean, like at what point do the doctors have to like take a look at what they're doing and what they're contributing to this clinical efficiency piece? All of the above. <laughs> and doctors are a big factor in it because you are the limiting factor on your schedule, period. If you have one doctor in a practice, I don't care what you call it, you are running a doctor time schedule because it's all based on what you can do. One of the biggest pieces I find with working with a schedule is you can have the best template built. If you don't have good people running it and managing the doctor, 
it will fail. If you have a clinical team and your TCs calling for the doctor whenever they want, it's not going to run as smoothly as if they have a schedule built and every team member calls for the doctor or asks for a doctor when they should in their appointment. That'll keep the doctor from being called for to needing being needed at two different chairs at the same time. Setting up, like you said, with the exams, the adult exams, setting those things up ahead of time and then teaching the team how to run them is huge. I think that, you know, it's interesting when I go and visit different practices, there's this huge variation in the level of responsibility that the assistants bear. And, and it mainly has to do with what the doctor is comfortable with in terms of what, and it's not even about, you know, letting assistants make decisions, but it's about, you know, letting them understand kind of the process um, and, and letting them kind of in on your way of thinking. I think that really, you know, is, is a powerful thing. When, when the assistants understand and really get a sense of what's going on, uh, you know, things just seem to run much more smoothly. What, what tips do you have to, you know, to get people maybe in that right mindset or, or what tools then to train people if they say, all right, this is something I want to do? How, how do we train our assistants? One of the best things that my doctor did when I was being trained, probably one of the best and one of the worst things at times that my doctor did for me was not at four o'clock in the afternoon, but at certain times during the day, he would sit down to the chair and he would say, what would I be doing now? And it made me, it trained me to not, I didn't sit down and take wires out and wait for a doctor. I had to sit down, look at a treatment plan, know where we are, know what the next step was going to be, because I didn't know if that was the patient he was going to ask me about. Yeah. That's how I worked. I got in, I looked at a treatment chart, I knew where we were. Two sets of eyes on a patient is huge. If I can kind of guide you and say, hey, check out the lower left five, it just helps you. But it helps make my job more fun because I understand it. it makes my day a lot more fun. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And my, my assistants really like that. Sometimes, you know, they get they get a little bit uh, grilled, but but in a way that clearly is meant to educate them and, and make them, you know, more useful and valuable to the practice. You know, some things that I've found really helpful is just there, there's kind of two ways of learning. The one is I think there are times when you have to sit down with your whole team and you have to spend an hour or two and you have to go through and you have to really explain things step by step so that they get that big picture, right? That they say, okay, here's how we're going to treat our case. We're going to start with these wires, then we're going to move to this next stage, and then we're going to get our x-ray and when the braces come off and so that everyone can hear the same story and everyone can have that 30,000 foot view. But then there's all these little opportunities when you're chair side, when it's a little bit slow, when you have a, an interesting situation, or maybe it's just a regular situation, but you can tell the assistant doesn't quite know what's going on. And you can ask them these sorts of questions like you had, Andrea, where people say, what would you do here? Or, or, or what do you think would be the you know, solution to this, this problem that we have here? Um, that's been really powerful for me. And, and my assistants kind of know the things that I'm going to ask at different stages in the treatment. So you know, if we are in a in a, in a round night tie, if I come over and I ask, are all of the rotations out? The assistant should know the answer to that question. And if they don't, they know that that's kind of a little bit of a problem. Because like you say, what the worst is when they sit down and they untie and they just wait. You know, I don't, I don't want that. I want them to know, okay, if we're in a round night tie, it's this. You know, if I come over and we're in a 1425 night tie or, you know, an 1825 night tie, and I say, have we had an x-ray? And they don't know the answer to that question. That's not great either, because they should know that's the point where we're going to be doing a pan repo. 
And if I come over in there in TMA wires and we're in month 14 of 18, I don't want to them to come over and say, we're in month 14 of 18. You know, they, they are supposed to look and say, number seven needs to come out a little bit. Number 23 needs to come up a little bit. We've got a little marginal ridge discrepancy here. And so, you know, when I sit down and I say, you know, what, what, what do we need to do here for finishing bends? Again, hopefully they've, and that's that two eyes is better than one. But sometimes I'm flying and I can't see, you know, I don't, I overlook the marginal ridge on 19 and 20. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but they've been sitting there hopefully for a few minutes with nothing else to do other than, you know, hopefully talk to the patient, not just gossip amongst themselves, but they can see these things and point them out. And, and to me, that's, that's been some of the things for clinical efficiency that have been so valuable. One of the things prior to going into a practice, um, when I go in for a consultation, I send a questionnaire in and get feedback from the clinical team members, well, all team members. And one of the biggest things as doctors you can do is they ask for feedback. Even the best clinicians will tell me, I know I don't do everything right and I want to know. I want those clinical meetings where I can find out more information. I want them to help me chairside when they see something unusual or I miss a call. I say, look at this, um, look at that upper right seven, and you say, mm, it looks good. Okay, what would you see that I didn't? They want that feedback. The best clinicians want it. If you have team members that aren't asking for that, <laughs> they're there for a job, but that's not your team member that's going to be what I call a mini-me. That's what I want my team members, my clinical team members to be, right. is below you, but looking at everything that you were looking at and learning. Right. Let's talk a little bit about you know emergencies and reducing emergency visits. You and I were speaking about this earlier today. You know what should doctors' mindsets be? I mean, obviously we have to accept some level of breakage and some level of you know wire poking. You know what's the balance between you know not getting too freaked out when things go wrong versus you know trying to reduce it or trying to make sure we're not making careless mistakes that just make us work harder and 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 make parents more unhappy than they need to be. When I look at a practice, I look at the number of emergencies seen, but that's only a portion of what the issue is. It tells me how many people came into the practice for an additional procedure, but it doesn't tell me what that procedure was or was it really necessary. Patient calls in, I've lost my retainer, and my scheduler, who's not trained very well to triage, puts him in an emergency slot. So you've got a whole lot of emergencies, but they're not really emergencies. So part of it comes from training front office on triage. But if you can get the number of true emergencies, patients that have to be seen, a bracket's off, uh, it's a second molar bracket, there's an elastic to it, something's really wrong that needs to be seen, to in the 6% range, that's golden. The the doctors that say uh, my percentage is at 1%, (laughs) I don't think they're going to track. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The other thing I track is... Besides what's in your computer, I track breakage that comes in on a regular appointment because I think that's valuable information. I train, we train in our office on bonding protocols every six months, at least once a year at at the minimum. I feel like that's the topic. If you're going to call a clinical meeting tomorrow, there's a good chance that you're going to 
gain something by reviewing your bonding protocols. I mean, that's like the low hanging fruit. But then on the other hand, you know, in our office, we have this philosophy of yawn and rebond, which was something that came up because, you know, when I originally joined the practice, when someone had a bracket off, it was like this huge production. Like the assistant would get all frazzled and, and then like you know, everyone would be like yelling at the patient. Not really, but you know, everyone would be upset. And, and then there was like all these supplies that had to come out. Like it was like this big deal. And it was, or like, let's reschedule them. And I'm like, let's just do it now. Um, so I think to a certain extent, if you can minimize the impact of a regular and expected Emergency on your day, you should do this. Like, you should just be set up so that when that comes in, you have all of the supplies right there. You can do it as quickly as possible with minimal disruption. If you expect a bracket to be off, not that you really expect it to be off, but if you're set up in a way that when it happens, it doesn't cause a huge disruption, you know, that's going to just save you a lot of aggravation and a lot of stress. And broken brackets cannot be something that like raises your cortisol level if you're going to have any longevity in orthodox. I think. Absolutely. That's one of the things I work with when I talk about clinical efficiency. It's getting the clinical team set up in their chairside units, in their organization, in the clinical area, and in the sterilization area so they can switch gears easily. They have everything that they need in their side units ready to go. So a patient shows up with a loose bracket, it's easy to switch gears. It's amazing how quickly they can rebond a bracket with everything there. But if, like you said, it's a big production, I've got to go get this, oh my gosh, the patient's you know, <laughs> behind, the schedule's behind, it is a pretty production and it can take 15 minutes. Yeah. If I have everything chairside, I guarantee you I can rebond a bracket in under five minutes yeah. with everything there. And it's not a big deal. Now, your repeat offenders, you may want to work with them a little bit sure. more. sure. And maybe not make it too convenient for them. And every <laughs> office has them. So, yep. Yeah. Um, well, let's finish with this. Uh, you know, are there any reports, Andrea, that people can pull out of their practice software? You know, if you're evaluating a practice and you want to kind of get a bigger picture view, what are the, you know, numbers or metrics that people can be looking at to get a sense for how they're doing? In the ma- in the management side of the software, everybody runs the same reports. You should be running your financials. I have no idea what they are. When we get into the clinical, there's a series of reports that I recommend every office run and track on a monthly basis. So I track emergencies, which is SOS appointments. And in some computer systems, we can put separate codes in that would allow us to code when a patient comes in with a bracket off. I run patients overestimated completion date. And I run your patient flow reports so I can see what's happening within the practice on a daily basis. Are we running behind? Are we giving the patients what they need, which is to get in and out on time? Those should be ran on a monthly basis, evaluated on a monthly basis, and then something done about it. If you're going to run these reports and not look at them, don't run them. Right. Have your clinical team trained on what to do. Like on your patient's overestimated completion date. I have clinical team members that would run the report, put it on doctor's desk. <laughs> end, of, end of story. That was the end of it. Have them evaluate that information and say, hey, we're seeing a lot of class three cases that are not finishing on time. What's going on? Are you miscalculating on your estimate? Or do we need to change mechanics? What's going on? But those are the reports that I recommend every office run and manage their clinic on. 
and their efficiencies. I would add one to that, and uh, Jeff Kozlowski would uh, be proud of me for doing this. Uh, the, you know, the other one I think that's huge that we've really started tracking is the number of visits to complete treatment. And at the end of the day, when you're talking about clinical efficiency, I think that number becomes really important because if you can reduce the number of visits to complete treatment from 20 to 15, you have a whole different practice. You're working fewer days, you're working with less staff, you're working out of a smaller facility. Your practice looks very different and your take-home income is the same. So you know, if you want a true lifestyle improver, that's another number I think that comes really important. I, I agree. And if your computer system doesn't pull it out, there's a I I have an Excel spreadsheet that I use that helps track that. And that's when you have one of your team members running that and looking at it and helping you say, hey, here's what I see, instead of just putting it on your desk. But that uh, I totally agree. I think that's a huge game changer. Yeah. Andrea, this has been a great conversation. I've actually had a wonderful time doing this interview and I've enjoyed having you in the office as well. If people want to ask you a follow-up question or they want to learn more about what you do, what's the best way to get a hold of you? I travel quite a bit as I am today, so the best way is an email at andreaLperiodcook at comcast.net or visit my website and you can contact me there at Andrea Cook Consulting. And I want to thank you for inviting me on this podcast. And I want to thank you for allowing me to work with your team and present the OSHA seminar tomorrow for you. Well, we've had we've had a great experience, and and my team—they're all big fans of you. They were telling me before we left. We hope to have you back, and maybe even the same time of year when all the foliage is uh, is in in peak bloom here. So it's absolutely beautiful. I look forward to it. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Orthodontics podcast. For more episodes, subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at elevateorthopodcast.com. Tune in next week for another great episode. 